Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to New Life Church. Glad to have you guys here with me. I'm Jeff Baker. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I just need to know, how many of you guys are excited to be at church today? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. If the person next to you is not, just nudge them really nicely and smile at them and say, get ready. All right, get ready. Just get ready. Hey, look, I want to say hello to everybody worshiping with us online today, as well as those at our North Platte campus and our Kearney campus. One church, multiple locations. Soon coming is the Ogallala campus. And uh, we're really, really excited about what God's doing as we just continue to expand. Come on. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Look, we're going to be starting a new series today. It's called Driving Force. Okay, Driving Force. And to jump into the series, we're just going to dive into this thing, all right, and get, get going with it. Uh, the first topic I want to tackle kind of brought me back uh, in my mind, my mind's eye, back to when I was a child, right? When I was a kid, I loved, like, outer space stuff. Anybody here, like, in, like loved outer space kind of things, you know, like rockets and travel to other planets? I mean, this dream, like, reading about it, dreaming about it, you know, our solar system, all those kind of things. I was just fascinated with that. Like, my grandkids today, they are fascinated with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. I mean, they just mention dinosaurs, and they just, like, rah, and they just, like, turn into one. It's amazing. Um, they know the sounds they make. They know the names. You know, they correct me when I call one the wrong name. I mean, it's amazing. But when I was a kid, I mean, it was okay. Dinosaurs were all right, but space, for some reason, was just it. And when I was a teenager, NASA had the uh, shuttle, you know, the space shuttle <clears throat> program. And, and that is, it really intrigued me. I, I, I was, it was hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around how these few humans would be at the, the top of this rocket and that this thing would just like ignite and it would be as if it was barely moving at the beginning. Then pretty soon you just kept following it up into the sky and then it just disappeared as it escaped the gravity of Earth and it made itself into orbit. All 4.4 million pounds of it, by the way. Right, that doesn't surprise you? Okay, okay. <clears throat> you're, not, you're not impressed with that? If it would have been like, what, five, 5 million pounds, you would have been super impressed with it? So 4.4 million pounds. I'm just amazed that they could even do that. But there's, there's really a couple of forces at work that are helping to make that happen. And it's the driving force behind the rocket. And that is the fuel. First, you got the fuel, right? But this oxygen and this hydrogen are blending together. And there's hundreds of thousands of gallons of this fuel that's being ignited to move 4.4 million pounds off of, you know, sitting still into orbit, and that blows my mind away. Plus, you've got a room that has no windows, full of engineers and scientists that are, you know, monitoring this rocket the entire time, and they are guiding the rocket while they are talking to the astronauts that are on board, and they're working together to make sure this thing goes exactly where they want it to go. But if you take either one of those two things away, you've got nothing. So the driving force behind the rocket was the fuel and it was the engineers and the scientists that were guiding it and the astronauts, the people. So the fuel and skilled people became the driving force. Now look, the the rocket fuel alone wouldn't have done the job because you just ignite rocket fuel, it's going to be very, very flammable. But I mean, a rocket without any guidance is, is actually something very, very dangerous. If you just have the engineers that are sitting around that dreamt this idea up, you know, of how to get 4.4 million pounds into space, 
right? And they're, they're seriously geniuses, right? And they're sitting around, they're drafting it all up and they come up with a plan. And when they get done with the plan, they build their nice little, you know, architectural model of the thing. And everyone's like, wow, that's really awesome. And then they say, yeah, but it's really too dangerous to really do it. If you just have either one of those individually, the, the space shuttle system doesn't have the driving force to actually accomplish its mission. It's the same thing for your life though. Right? If, if your life isn't driven by the right things, then you could become either obsolete, like you're just absent from making a difference in this planet, you come up with good ideas, but you can't, you can't initiate anything. Or you become very dangerous, like you're driven by the rocket fuel of life. And you're just out of control, and no one really knows what's going to happen. That's just kind of like where your life could be. But however, if you're driven by the right thing, you get the right combination of things that are your driving force. Now you can become extraordinary. Like the baffling idea of getting 4.4 million pounds into space. See, now it's starting to catch on. Now we're really getting it. Right, but I mean, you can become extraordinary when we're driven by the right things. Or otherwise, we just kind of like, we drift away. Just, an, just another entity walking around on this planet. So what drives you will determine your outcome. It will determine the difference that you make for God. And in this short series, which is going to be three weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the most common destructive driving forces known to man that tend to get their way into our heart and into our mind, and then they, they cause serious destruction in our life. And the flip side of that is we're going to be looking to God's word for the antidote that would eradicate those destructive forces and then put inside of you the right driving forces of our lives that are going to help us be the men and the women that God's really called us to be. And to get started today, I want to talk about the destructive driving forces of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians. They love God, by the way. They, they want to worship God. They want to serve God, but they just can't escape the gravity of their own regrets and their own failures. They just can't escape it. It's like they're held in bondage to these things. And the memories of their past, they try to shake them off, but they can't get away from them. They'll even come to a worship moment or in a, in a moment of prayer and they'll, they'll give them to God, but it's as if, as if they've, given him, they've given to God the, the past and their, their regrets and their failures only in lip service, but not in heart service. And so they, they walk out of that moment and they just keep dragging the same things along with them and our past then starts to control our future. Well, I, I, I got truth. Here's the truth. The truth is this, that yeah, you know, we are products of our past. There's no doubt about that. I'm a product of my past. I'm a product of my past when it comes to the way I lead. There's examples that were given to me and training that I was given, and that's being lived out in the way that I lead, in the way that I have parented, um, in the way that I make decisions. Like my past has helped me actually become who I am. I'm a product of my past. And some of that's awesome, guys. And then other parts of it is, you know, I gotta live with the consequences of my past. You don't just get to escape the consequences of our past. There are always, 
you know, a price to be paid when we cross the line and we don't honor God with our life. And there's a consequence. There's forgiveness, but there's still the consequence. And so there's products. These, these, this idea that, you know, I'm a product of my past is true, but here's the, here's the antidote to it. You don't have to be a prisoner to it, though. So it might be what has been developing you, but you don't have to be in prison to it. And I think Moses is a great example of that. So Moses, many of you know who Moses is. There's been great movies made about him. But for some of you who are maybe exploring God, maybe this is your first time walking even through the doors of a church today in North Platte or in Kearney, or you're worshiping with us online, you're like, Moses, who's Moses? Moses is in the Old Testament. So you would take a Bible. You would start at the very beginning, flip just a little ways in. You're going to find a book called Exodus. Exodus gives the account of Moses. Long story short, Moses is a slave. He's born into slavery where the, the Israelites are living as slaves in the country of Egypt. And he's born into this environment. His mom doesn't want him to be raised in this environment. She wants to save his life, actually, for a number of reasons, in which you'll have to read the story to get it all. But so she devises this plan that's going to make sure that her son Moses gets into the hands of Pharaoh's family. The, the leader of Egypt, so that Moses is raised with the idea that, you know, he would have a better future than she could ever give him. And as Moses is, you know, growing, as he gets older, he discovers he's not an Egyptian, he's one of the slaves. And he starts identifying himself with the slaves. And then he watches how the Egyptians are caring for, or in this regard, not caring for his people. And so he takes out his anger and his frustration on one of the guards of the, Egypt, of the Egyptian army, and he kills one of them. Well, when they find out Moses has killed one of the Egyptian guards, then he has to flee for his life. And he flees from Egypt into the backside of the desert. That's what the Bible says. On the backside of the desert, though, some amazing things happen for him. He finds his wife. He meets with God. You know, at the burning bush, God gives him the marching orders. He wants him to go back into Egypt and to deliver God's people out of Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. Now watch this. Moses is a murderer. That's the past. God didn't see Moses as the murderer. God saw Moses as the man he designed with an incredible purpose. And when Moses was able to unlock the gate and come out of the prison, right, that he was probably living in from his own actions and accept who, who, who God says that he is, and he let the Holy Spirit stick the key in the lock and open it up and he starts walking out of that, Moses becomes a man who knows God more than you and me know God today. Has a closeness with God. And is a great example that, look, our past... Yeah, it's going to be with us, but we don't have to be imprisoned to it. And that's not what God wants either. But for some of us that are here today, our guilt and our shame, they're like, they, they hold us in a prison. We can't escape it. When we close our eyes, when we're, when we're in a moment like this and I'm talking and you're thinking back to your past and you're thinking about, well, this moment happened and, you know, you know I, I sinned here and, you know, here's where I'm inadequate. I didn't even finish college or here's where I'm inadequate. You know, I've, I've been through, you know, two different marriages in my life and they both have ended in divorce. I'm not so sure about the one I'm in right now. 
When you look in your past and you see the failed business attempt and you see the debt that you carry and you know you look at your life and you don't have the confidence and when you look at your life many times it's like you're building the the bars of the prison around you and every failure and every regret and every picture of the past is another bar and then you're limiting the potential of your leadership you're limiting the potential of your influence you're limiting what God says about you because you put yourself in this cell and you've confined yourself to it because you said to yourself I'm not good enough and that's what guilt and shame does guilt and shame puts you in a prison what I want you to know today is this God God's here today and through this word he wants to ignite something in your heart he wants to bring truth to you and he wants you to believe maybe for the first time or to believe again that the shame and the guilt of your past can be broken off of you. And just like Moses, that you can live a, a preferred future that God sees for your life that is so much greater than what you could ever imagine right now. But if you stay in the jail cell, which is your option, you'll never get there. So how do we get out of that? How do we break free from this thing? Well, to do it, we have to come back and we need to like, really we, get, we need to divide guilt from shame. Guilt, guilt's built around an act. It's built around an event. I did wrong. Guilt says words like, I did bad. From a journalistic perspective, you can go back with guilt and you can say, here's the, here's the when and the why and the what, right? And, and here's the how. You can go back and you can answer all those kinds of questions for because it's an event, it's a moment, you can identify it, it has a label, and I'm, I, I, I feel guilt for doing that, right? But even when you identify it, even, even when we cross God's line, there's still the, the, the price, and the price is the heart gets wounded. So guilt creates a wound, but yet guilt is an event that you can actually identify. Shame, on the other hand, comes right on the heels of guilt. Shame is activated out of guilt. And shame starts making a radical transformation from I did bad to I am bad. And that, that difference is a game-changing difference. That when, when shame starts taking its hold, it doesn't just say you did wrong. Now shame takes it to a whole nother level. And it starts saying to you, you are wrong. You are bad. You will never please God. You are a mess up. Not just a you messed up in this one moment, but your entire life is a mess up. See, shame is much harder to identify where it came from. And it just kind of intertwines itself into your life and into your mind and into your heart. And it just keeps like a spider web. It just keeps working its way into all the different areas until finally it owns you. And you can't get back to its origin and you don't know how to get out of its grip because it's basically now defining you. And you, when you look into the mirror, you don't see the act that brought the guilt. You see the person and you say, I am bad. When we're caught in that prison, that's what makes it so difficult to dream anything bigger that God would be dreaming. When shame has its full course with us, it keeps us, it limits us from dreaming God's dream. The Holy Spirit comes and he tries to birth that dream in you, but all the time you have doubt because shame produces doubt. 
The entire time you feel the inadequacies because shame produces the inadequacies. And all of this started back in the garden. All started right back at the beginning of your Bible. God created Adam and Eve. They, they were living in the garden in this perfect place. And they were meeting, like, like God's word says, they were meeting with him on a daily basis. Can you imagine that? They, the Bible actually says they heard God walking through the garden. Can you, I mean, just think with me about that. Like the crunching of leaves and the branch that gets broken as, you know, someone's walking through the garden. Or maybe it was this. Maybe, you know, I think it's, God created everything. So God knows how to be stealthy too. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're a hunter here, I think God would know how to sneak up on an animal. All right. So he could have snuck up on them. So maybe it was the joy of the Lord was being heard as he's walking through the garden, just kind of whistling his way through. Maybe that's how they heard him coming. This joyful, this joyful God just whistling through the garden as he comes. But nevertheless, they, they would hear him. And in that perfect moment, this is how God defined Adam and Eve. Take a look at this. Genesis chapter 2. Now the man and his wife, they were what? They were both naked, but they felt what? Help me. They felt no shame. There was something about this moment where they felt no shame. Could they just get away with anything and feel no shame? I mean, holy cow, they're walking around with no clothes on. They feel no shame? No, that's not the point. The point isn't what they could get away with and feel no shame. The point was that there was no sin. Sin is the activator of guilt that leads to shame. Where there is no sin, there is no guilt, then therefore there is no shame. So this is the environment they're living in. But what happens after they sin? What, well, this is what happens after they sin. In Genesis 3, it says that at that moment, at their sin moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Instantaneously, guys, something starts to happen. And before I tell you what that is, here's what I need you to do with me. This story is something that many of you are familiar with. So your natural instinct is going to be to zone out. Because many of you know the story, but you know it from a 30,000 foot view. You fly over the story. You could tell the story, but you can't get the details of it. I'm taking you on a parachute ride down to the ground. We're going to put our feet into the garden and we're going to look at it from a, from a human standing on the ground level instead of just a 30,000 foot flying over. So how does this verse really apply to what we're talking about with this prison of guilt and shame and how we get out of it? Well, here's, here's where it starts. It says this, that at the moment of their sin, their eyes were opened. That was the guilt moment. That's when all of a sudden they realized we ate from the tree we weren't supposed to eat from. Yes, we're seeing the world differently than ever before. Yeah, sure. That's where most people go. I want to... I backtrack all the way back from, yeah, they ate from the tree of good and evil, which now they see, they see, you know, themselves totally different. I get that. But here's the first thing they saw, the guilt of eating from the tree right off the bat. Then this is what happens next. Then suddenly, quick, because that's the way the enemy wants to work. See, when we, when we sin before God, Guilt comes, but right on the heels of it is shame. Because shame is what really is going to keep you in bondage. 
Guilt can actually be used in our lives where the Holy Spirit's going to come back and bring conviction that will bring, you know, a resolution to our sin. But when shame gets in, then it starts getting spiderweb and it, it just gets out of control. But shame in this, in this understanding really has two sides to it. And you see it at work. You see it at work here um, in God's word. First side of it is how they began to see themselves. How they saw themselves radically started to change. Because of shame, they had shame, they felt shame at what? Their nakedness. I'm thankful to the Lord that he put that in there and that he kept in there in chapter two, this aspect that they had no shame even though they were naked. Like instantaneously, shame starts to change the way you see yourself. You'll always see yourself worse than what you are. You'll always be more harsh on yourself. You'll always be more difficult on yourself. You'll see all of your failures and you'll see all of your faults. That's what shame does. It's almost as if shame changes our ability to see ourselves correctly as a son or a daughter in God's image. It changes all of that. And I start to see all of my faults and all of my failures. So therefore, shame starts escalating and it starts growing and it starts compounding till finally it dominates everything about our lives. On the flip side of that, shame does this other piece. It starts making us see God differently. We get a warped image of who God is. When we live with this confines of shame in our lives, God, we can't, guys, we can't see God correctly. We can't see him as a loving God, as a compassionate God, as a gracious God, as a forgiving God, as a God who loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. It changes how we see him. Look what happens to these guys in the very next verse. Verse eight says that when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So look what they did. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Some shame changed the way that they saw God to a point where before they enjoyed walking with him, but now they want to hide from him. And they hide from him in all the wrong places, just like we do. Shame will cause you to hide from God in the wrong places. Like for some of you, you'll hide in work. Others of you, you'll hide in your house or you'll hide away from your house. Some of you, you will, you'll hide in housework or you'll hide in yard work or some of you will hide in the computer or you'll hide in your phone. Like you'll do anything to try to get away from what God's saying. You'll hide in, you know, Netflix. You'll hide just browsing the, the internet. You'll hide in your earphones. You'll hide in ESPN. You know, you'll hide even behind your humor. Many of us, you, you're having a hard time identifying why is it that there's something in me that just every time I want to get close to God keeps kind of making me backpedal, back off of him. And you can't figure it out. I want to tell you today, it's probably shame at work. Because shame is wanting you to hide from God. Shame is wanting you to backpedal away from him. There might be something in your heart that's wanting to move towards him. But then shame gets a hold and it says, yeah, but you don't deserve it. There might be something in your heart where you love God, right? And you just want to worship him more. And one day you went to like raise your hands and just abandon yourself to God because, you know, a pastor was challenging you with that or a worship leader was challenging you with that. As you started to raise your hands, shame kicked in and said, what in the world are you doing? Where are you going? You can't get there. Just stay in your seat. Just do your thing. All of a sudden, one day, 
Pastor Dean or Pastor Dave was challenging you to serve in ministry and you were kind of getting excited about it, right? And you were like, man, I love babies. I would love to serve in the nursery. <laughs> babies love me. That's, I mean, it's not me. I'm talking about you. <laughs> and you started to move that direction and you went away from the meeting and you were excited to do it, but then shame got a hold of you in the car ride home and said, if they really knew about your past, they wouldn't even let you get close to babies. If they really knew that, you know, mom, they really knew that, you know, you've got three kids and they're all, they're all from different, you know, men, they would never let you work with babies. Shame kicks in. See what I'm saying? Shame will cause you to try to hide from God's best. Shame, like the woman that Jesus ministered to in John chapter 4. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. He comes to this village of Sychar. It's, it's at the, the noon hour. The sun is in the, 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 the point of the sky. and The heat's blazing down on them. They travel in the morning. They travel in the evening. People do their chores in the morning. They do their chores in the evening, right? People kind of like go away in, for the afternoon uh, for a siesta, right? Or to eat lunch with one another or just to kind of take it easy and not be outside working too hard because the sun is blazing down and it's hot and so Jesus has stopped his journey and his disciples have gone in to get some food and while they've gone out to get some food Jesus is sitting at the the community well all by himself that would have just like hours before that would have been hustle and bustle and people coming and going getting water for the day and in the evening and a few hours from now the same thing was getting ready to happen but not at the noon hour at the noon hour it would have been quiet and then all of a sudden Jesus he hears someone coming up the path to the well. And his eyes look over and he sees this lone woman carrying these two jugs, you know, walking up to the well and she's gonna fill these jugs with water at the noon hour, at the heat of the day when people don't do that. And Jesus was like, something's not right here. I wanna find out what's going on with this woman. And long story short, he finds out that this woman's had five husbands and the man that she's with, it's not even her husband. I can only imagine, if you'll let me paint the picture for a second, that possibly of the five men that she's with, maybe she's had five different children with five different men. And when she goes down to the marketplace, right, and her kids are following her along, and she goes down after school to, like, get what she needs to get, she looks across the marketplace and she sees two other women, and they look at her, and they get that gaze in their eyes like, she's disgusting, and then they, you can see them gossiping with each other while they keep pointing over to her. And she has this that's going on. And her kids, they come home from school. And their kids come home and they say, Mom, Mom, I can't believe what they're saying about you. They're saying these horrible things about you, Mom. She's hearing all this from all the different directions. It's no wonder why she doesn't want to go out in the morning. It's no wonder why she doesn't want to go out in the evening. So she picks the moment when no one would see her. But to her surprise, she runs into Jesus. Her shame took her to the well at noon, but she runs into the one who has the keys to unlock the shame. That's good news. And as Jesus ministers to her, the shame starts to lift. Her identity starts to change. And I, I believe that that's what happened because she ran away from that well, a totally different woman. A woman who was trying to hide from people at noon 
turned around and ran right back into the community and said, you've got to come hear this man who's told me everything about myself. He's told me things about myself that I've, I don't even believe about me. He's told me things about myself that I stopped believing, you know, 10 years ago. He's restored hope to me. He's restored joy to me. He's changed my life. You've got to come meet the son of the living God. And the Bible says that, so, that many people came out and met with Jesus. And as Jesus was ministering to them, many more gave their life to Jesus because of what Jesus said and the woman's story. Guys, I just got good news for you. And that's this. If we bring our shame to Jesus and we stop bearing it ourselves and we stop letting it control us and we stop letting it you know, keep us from what God's best is for our life, we stop letting it hinder us, then God can do something amazing with your shame. He can wipe your shame away and turn you into a life-giving person. You know what I think the enemy loves to do in the church more than anything is this. You're saved, yeah. You got a relationship with God, yes. You're going to heaven if Jesus comes back today, yes but he just doesn't want you to produce that joy in anybody else. So he beats you up with shame. Because once shame was lifted off this woman, you see a revival that breaks out in the town of Sakar. And I just have to believe that in Kearney and in North Platte and you know, the smaller communities that some of you come from, that shame is dominating the hearts of people and people don't think they can be close to God. But when you let Jesus get a hold of your shame, then you can turn into a life-giving person. So shame holds you in a prison, but when the chains of shame are broken, you become life-giving like the woman. And I know that that's what God's heart is, guys. I know that that's what God wants to do. Because I want you to listen to a couple of scriptures. Listen to this one in Psalms. Psalms 32, what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven, right? What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Shame doesn't let you clear your record. It keeps reminding you of your record. But through God's grace, he clears your record. But we have to make a move. We have to make a move to Jesus. Similar to the woman making a move to Jesus at the well. She came to the well for one reason. You may have come to church for one reason, right? To fulfill a religious responsibility or just to come because you like coming and you maybe didn't know exactly what was going to happen today but you're here you came to the well but now I'm asking you to make a move to Jesus when you make a move to Jesus that's what happens through confession when we confess our sins to him when we confess our shame to him when you don't even know what's keeping you from him but the shame just keeps you know it's weight on your shoulders but you can't identify it you bring it to him then he has the ability to clear the record this is God's heart, guys. This is who he is. You're going to find this same message laced throughout Scripture. So I take you to another passage in 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins to him, that he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. I should have replaced this with all capital letters. All wickedness. All of it. All of it. Because of what Christ did on the cross, there's no reason why the driving force of our life has to be guilt and shame. But because of what he did on the cross, you can exchange that driving force for the driving force of God's grace and God's love. That's what happened for that woman at the well. When the driving force gets exchanged for grace and love, all of a sudden you want to tell people the good news. 
All of a sudden, you have to go and broadcast it to others. All of a sudden, you become life-giving. So guys, look, it's your move today. You came to the well. You came to church today. But now you gotta decide what move you're gonna make. Jesus is at the well. He's saying to you, I'll take your guilt and I'll take your shame. I can lift that weight. I can make you life-giving. But you gotta decide, are you gonna make a move to Jesus? You came to the well, but are you gonna make a move to Jesus? That's the question. I brought you to the well. I helped you get to the well today. And I'm encouraging you to make a move to Jesus. I can't make that move for you. Only you can make that move. It's like the man on that bicycle, right? Like only he or she. I just realized I don't really know. <laughs> only that person can pedal that bike. That's it. It's not a tandem bike. It's a single person bike. Only they can do it. Only you can initiate that desire and make a move to him and say, look, this is my guilt and my shame. Take it. I want to be life-giving. Exchange your guilt and shame for God's love and grace as a driving force in your life. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, as we uh, have come to the well here at New Life, it's time to make a move to you, though. That woman could have easily just brushed you off blown you off and just got her water and went right back into town. I can only imagine that maybe she even was like, doggone it, someone's at the well. Like I didn't want anybody to see me today. She was just having a, a tough day or whatever else was going on. And maybe for some of these that are here today, they're like, Man, it's a tough day. I just wanted this to come and just go through, you know, the motions today. But Jesus, you're here. You're here at the well and you're calling us to come to you. And today you're asking us, exchange your guilt and your shame as a driving force for my love and my grace. So Lord, we say yes to you. We do. This for this church, I pray for them. I pray that we would all learn to say yes to you in these next few minutes. That we would find, we'd find a weight lifted. We would find joy restored. Like the scripture that talked about in Psalms, that we'd find the happiness for those who are forgiven. Our world is in desperate need of Christians that know the happiness, the joy of what it means to truly be forgiven. Our world needs life-giving people. Life-giving people. So Lord, break the chains that are keeping us from being life-giving today. Because it's life or death for someone else we're going to run into this week. So Lord, maybe we came to this well for one reason. But we're going to walk away with the living water that'll cause us to never thirst again and that we could share with others that their life might be changed as well. So have your, have your way in this place and let your will be done in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.